You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a philosophical, critical, confessional, interstitial, theological, and always delectable conversation between Christian intellectuals. Your hosts are three Christian college professors, Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. Hi, and welcome to episode 101 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. We're, I guess, well into triple digits, and we have nothing to celebrate for another 99 episodes. How sad. <laughs> My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. I will be your host today. Joining me, as always, or as usual anyway, is Nathan Gilmore, who is an assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How's it going, Nathan? All doing pretty well. Been busy, but... That's a good sort of thing to be. All right, well, it depends on what you're busy with. Yeah, that is true. Uh, also joining us is David Grubbs, who is a professor of English at <laughs> Central Christian College in McPherson, Kansas. How's it going, Professor? Uh, p- pretty, pretty, pretty good, almost doctor. Oh, is that true? Oh no, you're talking to me. I'm, I'm talking to doctor. you. Oh yes, yes, listeners. By the time you hear this. We should be addressing Dr. Michael Farmer. I hope so. If not, you know. <laughs> anyway, I will have defended. I, I don't know if I will have passed. I don't want to jinx oh, anything. Oh, come on now. Come on now. Although I will say I ordered, I ordered my <laughs> You're tickets. You're literally the only person worried about that. I ordered my tickets for graduation, <laughs> my plane tickets, and I ordered them as Dr. Farmer. Oh, yeah. So, which, I don't know. <laughs> it seems like I might be tempting fate. Yeah, counting chickens and so forth. Right. But, but you know. My wife made me do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, I don't think we have any emails to read this week, although I will direct our listeners to a very interesting argument going on on the uh, Ode on a Grecian Urn post on the blog, wherein, uh, you know, frequent listener, frequent commenter, Hrothgar gets into it with frequent listener, frequent commenter, Charles H., Mm-hmm. So if you want to, uh, if you if you want it to be like that canto of the of the Inferno, where Virgil rebukes Dante for paying too close attention to other people's fights, head on over there and take a look. <laughs> and also, another spirited discussion on the blog is happening in response to our 99th episode on online education, uh, where people are chiming in on all sides of this thing. It's pretty great. No one has called awesome. me any names yet, so I'm pleased. <laughs> and listeners who are following my career will be glad to know I still haven't been fired from my remarks on that episode. Awesome. Though I don't like the way you phrase that. I still haven't been. That's That sounds ominous. As, as our listeners know from listening to that episode, I am not an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. All right, well, uh, let's dive right into our topic, which is Modernism 101. The germ of the episode was a request from our listener, Kay Motor, to talk about World War I. None of us are historians, and I figured it would be best just to expand it and talk about modernism in, in general. But World War I is such an important catalyst for all the art and philosophy that's going on during that time that uh, we would be remiss not to begin with it. Nathan, what uh, material conditions lead to the new forms of art that we see in the late uh, 1910s? 
Well, a few things are happening there in World War One that are going to be important to uh, what we talk about in the realms of art, philosophy, uh, cultural culture, more generally speaking. Uh, number one, because World War One involves a massive movement of people across national borders, as wars often do, uh, what you got in the wake of World War One is a world population, really, and that might be an exaggeration. We'll we'll say a an American population and a European population uh, that has become very, very intimate with each other. Uh, so what you've got is a sort of cross-fertilization of ideas uh, between, between Americans, Germans, Frenchmen, Brits, Russians. Uh, you've got the, the disastrous experiment with Leninist communism going on. You've got, uh, you know, sort of American pragmatism coming into contact with, uh, you know, the modern optimism of Europe and so on and so forth. Now, the other side of that coin is that because of the brutality of World War I, uh, a mechanized war like the world, like the world had not seen before, uh, what you got in the wake of World War I is a strong shock to the high modern optimism that characterized life uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and you know, probably best represented by the uh, World's Fair in Paris, where you know the the theme of the whole thing was you know into tomorrow, you know into a better future. Uh, the idea that the world was uniformly and irrevocably becoming a better place uh, simply couldn't be sustained in the wake of trench warfare. Uh, so those two things, on the one hand, you know, a strong, uh, a strong, you know, series of contacts between nations, and second of all, a strong shock to 19th century optimism, are really two things that you know combine to set the conditions for what we consider modern culture, uh, modernist culture more specifically. Now, one more thing that uh, I just want to touch on real quick, and then I'll see if you guys want to add anything, uh, is the fact that in the wake of World War I, uh, you do have what I consider sort of the last gasp of mm, 19th century optimism, I'll call it that, when Woodrow Wilson, uh, without any support from the American people, uh, spearheads an idea of a League of Nations. Uh, and, you know, when that League of Nations is sitting there as sort of the beacon of 19th century optimism at the same time that Europe is languishing and eventually descending into uh, ideological polarization, really those are some of the conditions culturally, certainly, and I'd, I'd argue materially as well, uh, for the things that we think of as modernism to take their form. Uh, David, is there anything that you'd add to that that stew? Not really. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, we're we're trying to. I mean, this is this is this is one hundred and one mm -hmm. um, for one thing. And, <laughs> you know, and 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 honestly, most of my encounters with modernism as a as an overarching um, notion. You know, much less its incarnations in particular, you know, modes of art has been on a very micro level. So, 
you know, you're, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of up in the Hindenburg looking, looking down by yourself. I'm <laughs> just before I blows floor. up. <laughs> I'm down amongst the streets. So, you know, <laughs> I don't really have much to add. I will add something. Um, there becomes a tendency later in the century to think of World War One as a great romantic war. Mm, okay. Um, and I, I think it's important to remember how sense, not just how violent and technological, but how senseless and absurd that war is. War is. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's it's kicked off by the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand from what is that Austria Hungary at that point. Mm-hmm. Yes, but but he is at the moment in Serbia, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. sorry. <laughs> the the uh, the preposition there was vague. Well, no, no, no. I was just trying to remember that incident myself. So, right, and then and then Modest Mouse shows up, and everything just. Sorry. <laughs> that uh, sorry. that's the hippest reference I've ever heard you make, Nathan. <laughs> it took me a minute to get it. I was thinking, what is he referencing from the late eighties? <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> sorry, um, but but the rest of the countries that get sucked into that war are sucked into it because, as you hinted at earlier, they've all signed these treaties that say they're going to go to war if one another go to war, and so you get people you get people in countries who don't really have anything to do with it forced into this conflict, but that, that they really have no immediate interest in. Am I mischaracterizing right, right. it? And, and then, I mean, just to add another level of absurdity, uh, after 600 years of brutal warfare, uh, all of a sudden Britain decides it's going to ally with France. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's funny that you mentioned the League of Nations as this last gasp of 19th century optimism, because I've always seen it as a kind of tragic pessimist mode. That, oh, interesting. That, okay, go ahead. That we can't we can't trust all these countries to have their own treaties, so we better come up with some sort of organizing body that will keep them all together. Now, I mean, oh, okay, okay. You could you could argue, of course, that that that's still pie in the sky optimism, and I know a lot of conservatives still argue that. But I I've always seen the creation of it as as a uh, kind of a sad a, re- a resigned move rather than a uh, optimistic move. Okay, that's interesting. I guess. Uh... By contrast with, you know, sort of the 18th century ideology that nations are going to have wars, so let's have, you know, rules to govern them. I, I see the League of Nations as, you know, let's all get together as world leaders and try to prevent any more wars from happening. I see. Well, that didn't happen. Oh, yeah. I, I, that, <laughs> yeah that, that, thank you, Michael. I, I just wish you'd been there 15 note. years earlier. I might not have failed that history exam. <laughs> Well, that's why it's called World War One, I, I guess, and not just World War or Dude. the last war. <laughs> exactly. You'd think they would have known when they named it World War One. There was another one coming. I mean, they they weren't bad at logical consequences back then. I you know I once got a puppy that was fairly sedate, and then I named it Frisky, and it turned into a monster. So, you know, that's what names do. Oh heavens! Well, let's move on. Yes. Let's. <laughs> And any historians listening, feel free to write in and correct our uh, Hindenburg overview of World War One. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> David, modernism, if we're being honest, is a pretty terrible term. Uh, mm-hmm. It does not lend itself to easy definition. Um, I believe Nathan or U1 used it 
already to mean two different things because you talked uh, I, I think it was nathan talked about the modern era of philosophy which actually begins what descartes yeah by most measures yeah so i mean it obviously we, we're dealing here with an imprecise and arguably unhelpful term um but <laughs> let's uh let's try to define it anyway what characteristics do modern works have across genres and media so if we had to define modernism in such a way that it included visual art, architecture, literature, music, how would we go about doing so? Oof. <laughs> well, I guess first to to encapsulate the uh, or to to kind of get back get at at why it's ambiguous. Um, the word itself, and you know, I I I went to the OED because I was like, that's a great question. Um, and the OED has has told me, unsurprisingly, that it's it's Latin, um, uh, but it's it's post classical Latin, uh, modernus, um, which is built off of the Latin adverb of time, which means just now. And uh, apparently, it was used in the Middle Ages to indicate now as opposed to back then being the classical world ask david grubbs a question about modernism and he talks about the middle ages <laughs> hey i told you what modern meant in the middle ages <laughs> so i consider that as counting <laughs> i mean you know it, it, it the word means just now and it was just now back then um and you know all all eras since that have continued to use that that word have have meant just now whenever that happened to be as opposed to back then which was whatever happened to come before right so it has the connotation of before the scoop of ice cream melts <laughs> for yeah. the flavor of the month melts <laughs> yeah, basically you know so um, and I actually discovered another word, which I, I, I actually kind of like even better than modern, which is uh, hodiern from the Latin hodiernus, which means today, <laughs> todayness. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, all, the, all, all of that to say this, um, what was different in, in the Middle Ages was that they did not necessarily see the modern time, the just now time, as superior to or advantaged above um, the the ancient time, what came before, right? Um, so I, I guess one of the one of the things that typifies modernity generally is is this uh, preference for what is just now over against what came before and an attempt to define itself, um, you know, by difference with what come with what comes before. That's, you know, that's, that's mainly, you know, what I've got, if I'm going to be super, super general, mm -hmm. um, tack that on to, you know, um, that, that old Victorian optimism and then ally that with, you know, Darwinian notions of, of biological change that leads to advancement. And you have, you have the idea that the just now is necessarily the most enlightened, most enlightened, the highest progress, the, you know, the best, because there has been change and that change is towards something, something better 
And so the just now is the best that you're going to get. Or, or at least at least the change is irrevocable, right? Because I mean, even even among modernist artists, you get occasional people with a uh, heavy duty conservative pessimist streak who would say, "Well, this is not the best time ever." However, there is no returning to the previous times, and so we need something new. Right, right. You know, the the idea that the, that that this time needs something that past times cannot give it. Hmm. You know, the just now needs just now things. Right. Now correct me. <laughs> <laughs> Any corrections, Nathan? Well, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm scanning down to see if uh, we have a separate question on architecture. We don't. Okay, good, good, good. Okay, because, I mean, you know, the, the term modernism, you know, uh, really has its roots in architecture before it has its roots in uh, – poetry or music or any of those other media. So same I mean, with, one same the, with postmodernism. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the figures that, you know, we should talk about sort of at the roots of modernism is Le Corbusier, uh, the French architect, uh, you know, his famous, you know, line that, uh, sort of set in motion and even that metaphor stinks of modernism. Uh, <laughs> but he said that a house is a machine for living in. Hmm. And, you know, so modernism uh, really is something that tries to take seriously that we are in a an industrial moment, uh, a moment where we are fabricating the, well, I mean, the architecture of our lives, right? So mm. uh, the idea is that, you know, we don't, uh, like you said, David, reach backwards to old ideas for it, but we are fabricating it now. Uh, and, you know, in that same essay, when he said that, you know, he famously said that uh, our job as architects is to find truth in what is modern, right? Mm. Uh, which is mm-hmm. sort of the roots of, you know, the the modernist movement intellectually. So, yeah, I mean, you know, Le Corbusier is a very important figure. Of course, his houses, if you look at them now, uh, you guys might have different taste in architecture than I have. Uh, but oh goodness, they are ugly buildings. Yeah, they're ugly. Uh, the- <laughs> <laughs> I love the modernist um, skyscraper, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I can see that. But I mean, uh, you know, Le Corbusier's own own buildings, and then you know the sort of Bauhaus movement. Uh, I mean, are just thoroughly ugly buildings. I think. I mean, so yeah. I, I I usually try to start out on a sympathetic note with any intellectual movement we're talking about. But when we talk about modernist architecture, I'm I'm just not a fan. Oh, well, you just have to start somewhere other than Le Corbusier. Just look at the Chicago skyline. Or Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, is is the high yeah. modernist architect that everybody knows. Anyway, I don't know if he's the okay, I guess that's most true. notable I guess that's one. And true. I mean, doesn't everybody love Frank Lloyd Wright? I guess that is true. I'll, I'll, I'll grant that. But Except yeah, I'm with you on Le Corbusier. Haters. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking of that. And, you know, Michael, maybe you can post a an image of this in the show notes, but that ugly, ugly white house with the geometric windows. Isn't that the one he built for his mother or am I thinking of somebody else? <laughs> I don't know. I never heard that story, but the mother I he like didn't it. like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Made it for Norma Bates. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is probably my ignorance talking, but is there, is there some kind of observation that needs to be made about architecture being, the first in this wave, given that 
It's the most permanent. Buildings, yeah, buildings are probably the least ephemeral, most permanent, most time-consuming to make. You know, well, on the other of... hand, least avoidable. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I don't know. I'm sure somebody's made an argument about why this was so with both modernism and postmodernism, but Nathan's absolutely right. Architecture leads the movements, and then the other arts follow it. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not denying that it's so. It just seems really, really strange that that would be animating someone, that that, that, that idea would be animating someone when necessarily their house is still going to be standing <laughs> unless they knock it down 10 unless, years from now when that idea is stale. You know, Jinx, uh, Charles Jinx has that famous essay where he gives the date and time modernism died, and it's the day they knocked down the Pruitt Igo. I think it's Igo, maybe it's Ego. Um, housing development in St. Louis. So maybe <laughs> maybe the architecture's not as permanent as we'd like it to be. Yeah, he gives like an exact minute, although he, he says later that he makes up the minute. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But that'll That's have fun. to that'll have to be saved for our postmodernism one on one episode. Uh oh, uh oh. Oof. <laughs> Alright, well from this point forward, each one of these questions could probably be its own episode, which is I guess what a one-on-one episode means. And maybe uh, we can put a pen in these if we're interested and come, come back to them with a full episode later. But mm-hmm. uh, let's, uh, for now, let's skim the surface. <laughs> this and, is how you can tell we're on episode 101 instead of episode two, because we're saying, yeah, we might come back to this. Yeah. So uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll start with music. Uh, Nathan, Facebook tells me you grade the Stravinsky, so I figured I'd pitch you the music question. Uh, what major developments are there in you know, art music, and what pieces have been added to the canon of classical music from this era? All right, well, uh, I'm going to start not with Stravinsky, but with Arthur Schoenberg, because I think of him as sort of the quintessential modern composer. Uh, Schoenberg's project was to uh, write purely mathematical music. Uh, It was a rebellion against what he called the sentimentalism of romantic symphonic music, uh, and this music is, without a doubt, intellectually stimulating. Uh, if you have Spotify listeners, uh, type in S-C-H-O-E-N-B-E-R-G, Schoenberg, and listen to the album that pops up that is a pianist playing these purely mathematical compositions. Uh, it really is ideal music for grading because it takes your mind and sets it, I mean, in, in order, basically. Uh, but on the other hand, I mean, it would be a terrible movie soundtrack unless it were some weird cerebral science fiction thing. Uh, because, you know, just as it says, I mean, it is entirely unengaging in terms of emotional swells, crescendos, decrescendos those sorts of things. So uh, Arthur Schoenberg is sort of my quintessential modern poet, uh, not poet, golly, modernist composer, pardon me. Um, And after you guys, you know, hit your modernist composers, I'll come back if we need to and talk a bit about Stravinsky since Michael actually did pitch him to me. (laughs) And since, I mean, he is, I mean, wouldn't you say the modernist composer? 
Yeah, yeah, but maybe well, Schoenberg. Maybe you're right. He, he, he's certainly better known. I'll grant that. Uh, right, of, right of Spring is usually offered up as you know the. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But I wanted to talk about Schoenberg just Fair because enough. I mean, if you hadn't, I would have. If if he's the you know if uh, Corbusier is you know the modern the modernist architect, I would say Schoenberg is the modernist composer. So I'll let you guys do your composers, and then I can come back and talk a minute about Stravinsky if I need to. David, what do you got? Can I count Samuel Barber? He Making... is technically the contemporary era, I believe. Ugh. Okay. But well, Barber's... because contemporary doesn't really mean anything in terms of the modernism, <laughs> postmodernism divide. You can call him a late modernist, I suppose. I mean, I'm not a music, I'm not yeah. a music historian, so I'm certainly not going to smack you down. Well, I, I mean, I was thinking particularly of uh, a Barber, uh, Barber's Adagio for Strings, which um, was uh, was first performed in 1938. So, I mean, I guess that is that is towards the end of of, of what we've staked out. But I thought the 30s were included. Yeah, they're included. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right, sweet deal. So I'm going to go with Barber's uh, Barber Samuel Barber, but especially his Adagio for Strings. Which is not mathematical in in that you know purely cerebral ordered sense. It is it is very emotional. But um, if you, I, I the the first time uh, I remembered noticing that it, it it's it's difference from the other kinds of symphonic music that I like to listen to when I was growing up was when I realized how difficult it was to whistle. <laughs> you, know, because, you know, you said the same thing about Debussy when we did realism. Yeah, yeah. Well, and 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 there was something similar going on here because there was, there was, there was a, a shift in the in and uh, a, a, a a morphingness to it that it's still recognizably the same thing, but it's 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 very hard, very difficult to sh- to to hold on to thematically. Um, in terms of, you know, in terms of like a consistent melody and things like that. Um, but yeah. And that, and I, I, I guess that, that for me is something that I, that I kind of see as, as, as also part of modern, you know, the, the modern, because they're not, because it's, it's, it's seeking to, uh, not, not stick to standard, um, standard ideas of how a symphony should be structured with, um, separate movements with distinct themes, uh, distinct, uh, tempos, you know, it doesn't have, you know, now we have the Allegro, now we have the, you know, the, this and the that. Um, but you know, it's this one distinct piece, but nonetheless, uh, bending rules, but not necessarily in a way that's going to make, you know, the first audience throw things. So, yeah. 
I guess I guess that's as good as I'm going to do. Honestly, I can't, I cannot stand most of the stuff that comes out of this era. That symphonic music. I hate <laughs> Stravinsky so much. Oh, cannot stand it. Um, Bela Bartok makes me want it. Oh, you, ear. you dirty. Anyway, I love uh, I love Bartok and Stravinsky. <laughs> and I, I was no. actually I was actually going to talk about the way they are more indebted to the past than they are typically given credit for. I mean, Stravinsky mm-hmm. takes a rather well-known neoclassical turn. Um, and he, he returns to that well um, really throughout his career. Bartok, you can see him in some ways as continuing the project begun by the arch-romantic composers Brahms and Dvorak in this rescuing of, if you want to call it rescuing, that's a loaded term, rescuing of Eastern European folk music and and elevating that into high art. Now, Bartok does it in a way that is discordant and atonal because... I don't know if he had big. Bartok. I don't know if he had big <laughs> fingers or whatever, and couldn't hit the keys right. But, <laughs> but, but I mean, to some extent, he is doing something very similar, I think, to Brahms and, and Dvorak. He's just doing it for a new age, right? The age of anxiety, as Alvin calls it. guy like Manuel de Falla, who who is actually composing for harpsichord of all things, this instrument that nobody had given a um, given a rip about since the classic since the classical era, as far as I know. know of any romantic harpsichord pieces <laughs> i mean it, it's hard to do the no. big romantic swells on a harpsichord right right so, so i i think with music in particular you see a return to previous um conventions more than you would initially think you would even with somebody mm-hmm. like bartok david I, I mean i'm not denying that that's there it's it's just you know, it makes me want to beat my head against a wall. Have and you heard Stravinsky's neoclassical stuff? No, I don't think I have. No, though I would say, you know, I mean, of the Stravinsky that I know, the coolest thing, you know, the, the most positive thing that I can say is that the first time I saw it, dinosaurs were killing each other to it, and that was pretty neat. <laughs> so, you know, there's that. Well, I have left Stravinsky largely to Nathan. All right, all right. So let's talk a little bit about the Rite of Spring. First of all, you know, it is one of those uh, 
it, it's kind of like um, oh, what's that? Kublai Khan. There we go. That's that poem we talked about recently. In that, it's the legend of its premiere is something that you can't get away from. Uh, you know, you have to tell the story about how there were actually riots in the streets. Uh, because the people had never heard anything like this, so it actually broke down into a mob scene. Uh, and, you know, it is hard for us to imagine in 2013 that a piece of uh, ballet music could have this effect on a crowd, but there it is. Uh, the Rite of Spring itself, I mean, is notable because of its just rapidly changing and frankly, discordant shifts of episodes. And you really can't talk about it in terms of movements as if there were long sustained, uh, well, now, I, now I'm going to define the term by itself. It's not as if it uh, has long sustained passages. There we go. I'll use a synonym and pretend I didn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, instead what you got is, you know, uh, a melody line, played at one moment and then repeated a little while later, a half tone later or a half tone lower. Uh, you've got strongly syncopated, uh, instrumental passages that, you know, uh, Well, I mean, that, that they don't follow, you know, what you would expect from, frankly, a romantic uh, co composition. And one of the things about modernism in all of these genres is that the strong influence of the romantic period is being rejected. It's being uh, resisted. So, you know, what you've got going on in Stravinsky is uh, something entirely, entirely unlike what you would what you would hear now. The trick with Stravinsky and talking about him in 2013 is that I can't listen to The Rite of Spring now without hearing Jaws in my head. Uh, <laughs> because, I mean, all the opening theme music to Jaws is is the pursuit sequence from The Rite of Spring uh, played in two chromatic notes instead of one repeated note. Uh, you know, it's the strongly syncopated, accented... Um, trying to think, would those be eighth notes? I don't have the score in front of me, so I don't know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you, you know, this. well, no, no, no. I mean, so you know, I mean, what what you've got is you know something that in its time was entirely revolutionary, uh, but for us, you know, a hundred years later, it is every movie soundtrack that you have heard. So, mm -hmm. uh, Michael, I mean, I, I I'm sure I'm missing. I mean the some of the big points about this. Uh, but again, when I saw your question, I knew I had to talk about Schoenberg. So what would you add to the Stravinsky bit? Just how, I mean, how violent it is. And you know, it premieres before world war one, but I think in some sense it serves as a kind of pre soundtrack to world war one. Mm -hmm. 
um, it is another piece that reaches back in a weird way. It, it has about it the flavor of Greek tragedy. And before I teach Greek tragedy in my classes, I often listen to the Rite of Spring to prepare myself spiritually for it. Oh, interesting. Okay. It is, uh, the. I think the most important thing to keep in mind is that it is one small piece in Stravinsky's 40-year career. Yeah. And that, I mean, his his range of output is enormous and and. If you hate Rite of Spring like David does, there's all sorts of other stuff you might take a listen to um, to convince yourself that Stravinsky might be worth your time. I mean, I'm not going to make a counter-argument, so, you know, because <laughs> all, all I'm going on is my what I like. Sure. <laughs> I, I mean, and and I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound snobbish, but the modernists are kind of the great snobs in literary and artistic history, right? Um, yeah, they really are. It's not there for you to like it, exactly. I mean, you do like it, but like it's very off-putting at first. Atonal music is, is difficult, and, and the pleasures are primarily intellectual at first. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, it requires more thought than I think most people are able to devote to it, frankly. Although, like David said, and, and again, this is why it's hard for me to discuss it intellectually, is that when I hear Rite of Spring, I'm either picturing dinosaurs killing each other or a <laughs> dorsal fin sticking up out of the water. I mean, I, I can't get away from it. Another piece of music ruined by Walt Disney, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, not for me. I mean, he I mean. To me, the dinosaurs were the redeeming parts, so, you know. <laughs> well, let's move on. Uh, David, I figured I'd chuck the literature question at you. Our medievalist. Oh, thank you. What is the opposite of medievalism look like in literature? What are the major works of modernist literature? What makes them modern? And do you find anything you like in them? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, if you're going to talk about modernist literature and, and you know, harking back to, to other things, the idea of novelty, um, the idea that um, new times need new art um, because they have new problems, which old art doesn't address, or new emotions, which old art does not capture, um, things of that nature. Um, in particular, I think modern literature is marked by, um, formal experiment, experiments with, um, uh, experiments with genre, experiments with how to tell stories. Um, stream of consciousness seems to be, um, you know, a, a, a big deal, uh, in, at this point, um, which seems to embody, I, I guess, a more individual focus in modern literature. You're in one person's head in the way that we're all in our heads. Um, and also the idea of uh, um, testing traditional boundaries. Um, you know, if, if the new world needs new art because it has new problems and new emotions, well, it might also need, you know, new standards of what... Um, of what is of what is good and what is right on many different levels. Um, so you've got, uh, well, I, I guess writers like D. H. Lawrence who like to, you know, poke poke things, so to speak, um, and make other people uh, uncomfortable with their with their uh, treading upon boundaries. Um, 
major works of modernist literature. I, again, I'm the medievalist, so I'm harking back <laughs> to things that, you know, I've read long, long ago. Um, most, most of the stuff that I've read from around this area, a bit of Joyce, um, Joyce is big, though I've mostly only read short stories from him. Um, I've never read, uh, I've never read a complete novel by Joyce. Me neither. Um, oh, good. I feel so much oh, better babe. now. <laughs> I've, I've read more Joyce than our modernist. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> oh, let's see. Elliot, Pound, um, a lot of Yates stuff is in this era. Yeah. Um, Auden? Do we toss him in here? Yeah, I think Auden is generally considered a late modernist. Mm-hmm. Okay. In temperament. Do we count? Do we count the various World War One poets? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't see how Wilfred Owen or somebody like that would not be considered a modernist. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, I mean, well, his uh, oh, Dulce uh, decorum est. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was, I was uh, thinking it's a Latin phrase. Um, mm-hmm. Dulce, yeah, Dulce at decorum est. I mean that. I mean, it seems as if the thesis of that of that poem is old ideas about war and patriotism and so forth just don't work anymore. So, yeah, sentiments you see reflected in a much more obviously modernist work like uh, Farewell to Arms. There's that wonderful mm. passage late in that book where uh, Lieutenant Henry talks about all the words that don't mean anything anymore in the modern age, words like honor and glory. So mm. I, I think I think you're right to point out the World War One poets okay. as, as precursors to that. Well, what direction would you take this, Nathan? Because you know, my again, I'm I'm you know <laughs> the man who's wandered on very few modern streets. Yeah, I mean the 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 big text that I would point to as you know sort of my idea of what modernist literature is would be Ulysses by James Joyce. I mean, you've got okay. uh, an entire long novel uh, narrated. Uh, I mean, through the lens of one character's consciousness. Uh, it is in, you know, just painstaking detail. Every thought that crosses his mind, uh, becomes textualized. Uh, and this Mm. is, I mean, you know, the influence of a few things. One is, you know, a shift away from the Hegelian and to some extent romantic. And again, we talked in that recent trilogy about how the fact, how there's not one definition of romantic, uh, but some romantics, you know, tend to focus on the great men of history, so-called, right? Uh, that's mm-hmm. certainly a focus in Hegel, uh, also some romantics. So instead, we've got uh, Bloom, right, uh, who is nobody in a very, fairly straightforward sense, and yet we are traveling around inside his head for, in my edition, 600 pages. <laughs> um, Oof. And, you know, the other thing that I would point to as a, a strong... Uh, literary modernism emphasis would be interactions with modern psychology, especially that of Sigmund Freud. Absolutely. Uh, the okay. idea that, yeah. you know, why is it that we can generate 600 pages of text from one calendar day in the mind of nobody? Well, the answer is that there is an immense and usually unarticulated text going on uh, inside of the human psyche. And of course, this is, you know, the stock in trade of Sigmund Freud gets picked up by Carl Jung. You know, of course, it gets uh, of course, they inherit it from Friedrich Nietzsche. 
Uh, but this idea that, you know, the, um, the categories and the narratives and all of the things that older philosophies would have considered as sort of, well, I mean, frankly, as objective, right. As something that you can point to, uh, intelligibly, even if not empirically as a reality, right. You know, the nature of a good human life is something that is actually a mishmash of, you know, a thousand different strands uh, vaguely connected to each other, but certainly not in anything like an arithmetic order. Uh, mm. So, I mean, you know, what you've got going on in Ulysses, uh, and I've, uh, you know, I, I won't say that I've understood it, guys, but I have run my eyes over all the pages, uh, <laughs> uh, really is, I mean, a <laughs> portrait in usually English sentences, I think, uh, of <laughs> the movement of the human mind in all of its complexity and in all of its messiness. And really, I mean, that's, that's what I think of when I think of modernist poetry and, you know, on a smaller scale, something you can take on in a, you know, a sophomore literature course, uh, you've got something like, and, you know, David, I'm going to point back to the poet that you emphasized, you know, something like T.S. Eliot's poem, you know, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, right? Mm. Uh, you know, it is a terribly disjointed poem. Uh, but, you know, I mean, you can trace it not in terms of an Aristotelian narrative with a beginning, middle, and end, but in the random jumpiness of human consciousness. Mm. So that, th those are the two figures I think of most readily when I think of literary modernism. Michael, what would you add to the? I would add Faulkner. Ah, yes. Of course you would. Who's, you know, equal parts modernist and southerner. And, and he introduces, he doesn't introduce, but he exemplifies a concept that I think is really important for the modernist, which is playing around with time. And and Joyce does this too. I haven't read Ulysses, but Ulysses takes place, as you say, in one day, which means it is an intensification of time. And you can compare that to Faulkner, where something like The Sound and the Fury, especially the first two chapters, skips around wildly over decades without any kind of signal that it's doing so. So that you really can't even make sense of it until somebody has already sketched out the timeline for you. Speaking mm. of the novel I pretended to read. Oh, that's such a great novel. <laughs> I still don't know what the heck happens in it. So <laughs> uh, you, should, uh, you should go back and look at it. Although, who am I to talk? I've never finished uh, Huckleberry Finn. Hey. Really? Yeah, I hate Huckleberry Finn. Uh, anyway. Okay. But Huckleberry Finn is not modern, so it's not it doesn't really have anything to do with what we're talking about. So yeah, that 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 collapse, either in, in the form of intensification or in terms of fragmentation of time, I think is really important. And part of that is due to the uh you know, the general interest in psychology, as you say. Stream of consciousness is going to not differentiate between memory and occurrence. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in terms of your psychology, in reading a modernist novel anyway, there's no difference between experiencing something and remembering having experienced it, especially if you're like the the narrator of the first part of Sound and the Fury, if you are developmentally disabled. Mm -hmm. Faulkner plays around with narration in different ways in all of his books. And so he's almost always worth reading at least until about 1945. Um, he gets sentimental in his old age and is not 
<laughs> I mean, you you definitely shouldn't start with anything from the fifties. Let me put it that way. Um, <laughs> the other thing, and and we've kind of danced around this a little bit, is the the general fragmentation of modernist literature. And and here, the the wasteland really is the best example. The the famous line in the wasteland is these fragments I have shored against my ruins, and I think I've quoted it right. Mm. I always feel like I get it wrong, but um, you you know this is this is Eliot mourning the loss of cultural consensus that he believes culture once had, and now all we have left is these fragments of wisdom from the past that we can't really access, and so all you can do is kind of scoop them into a little pile and hide behind them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure them against your ruin. Right. And so you, you get you get similar movements to that in a lot of different modernist works. Fragmentation, um, just in general. Hmm. Alright, well Nathan, when we did Realism one oh one, you so enjoyed talking about art history that I figured uh I'd give you the art question again this time. Uh tell me about modernist art. Visual art. All right, to lead up into what I would call modernism proper, uh, you've got some really significant 19th century figures uh, in the sort of post-impressionist period. Uh, I want to focus specifically on uh, Van Gogh and on Edvard Munch just because they are so well known. Both of these painters uh, are famous for the use of color that uh, evokes emotions more than it represents what a photographer would pick up with a camera. And this becomes very important in this moment. Again, we talked about uh, modernism being a thoroughly industrial moment in the history of art. Uh, What the painterly world goes to, at least in those two figures, uh, is something that by definition can't be picked up by a camera. Uh, What they try to do is express emotions, uh, which is why they're often called the early expressionists. All right. So moving on into the 20th century, I mean, the sort of signature modernist painter uh, is the Spaniard Pablo Picasso. Uh, And, you know, if you have seen Picasso, you don't forget Picasso. Uh, You know, my personal favorite Picasso is actually hanging in my office right here as I speak. It is the Guernica of 1937. What Picasso is after in that painting is art that responds to the new terror that is aerial bombing. Uh, The Spanish Civil War is going on at this period. Uh, Fascist forces are clashing with volunteers from largely Britain and America. Uh, And for the first time, really, you have massive industrialized aerial warfare, bombs being dropped on civilian targets. Uh, You had, of course, some of this in World War I, but the Spanish Civil War sees it ramped up Uh, to a level that we've never seen before. And so instead of uh, trying to do a sort of photographic, realistic depiction of what happens, what you get in the Guernica uh, is a sort of geometrically fragmented view uh, of distorted bodies, uh, of people, you know, twisted up into positions that are unimaginable for the human body. Uh, You know, you have surfaces and textures that really don't belong in what we would call realistic painting. And, you know, what the eye tracks to in this painting really is the lines, the geometric form 
that runs through the thing. Uh, but then the ethical impact of it is that you realize that there is something human that lies beyond the abstraction. Uh, so when we talk about abstract art in the modern period, and of course, um, abstract expressionism is one of the great movements of the period. Uh, what we're talking about is a deliberate alienation of the visual impression from the ethical impact. Uh, and you see that not only in, you know, Picasso, but also in Duchamp, uh, in Chagall, uh, you know, I mean the, well, and I mean, you know, to some extent too, in Salvador Dali, right. I mean, you have these forms that to the immediate impression don't make any sense. Uh, and yet when you step back from it and, you know, try to live with it because you can't really make sense of it. Uh, you know, I mean, there is an experience that occurs, uh, that can't be accounted for in normal represent representational categories. Uh, so I mean that, you know, those are the things that I would say, at least in painting are sort of the signatures of modern art. We've already talked somewhat about architecture, so I won't belabor that point, but there is a corresponding movement in sculpture of this period uh, where geometric form really starts to take precedence over representational Renaissance style bodies. Right. Uh, and again, you know, the idea is that uh, the moment has become, it has transcended representation. And so, you know, rather than try to represent what is unethical to represent, uh, there is a lateral shift into abstraction from what can be represented. Uh, what do you hmm. think, Michael? Would you would you run with that? Absolutely. I mean, I don't know that much about art history, unfortunately. Uh, I would add futurism, which which uh, yeah. predates mm -hmm. the rest of modernism by just a few years. But futurism, um, well, you can easily find the Futurist Manifesto online and read it in about five minutes. It it involves a bunch of young guys out drinking one night. They get in their brand new race cars. They drive. They crash. They're so excited by the crash that they decide that art should be all about violence and war and speed. And and so you get um, the manifesto is frankly utter BS. But the um, <laughs> the art that comes out of it is attractive in a weird way. And they 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 do literature, although their literature stuff is pretty wrapped up with visual art. They do painting and then they do sculpture and all of them are very, I, th I think, very interesting, very stylized and really lead into the, the second, the last group of painters you were talking about there, Nathan, with the uh, geometric forms. You see, mm -hmm. I, I see yeah. that as an outgrowth from futurism. Also, you, you touched on Dali briefly. Surrealism in general um, is another product of that psychoanalytic focus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If if the human psyche is like an iceberg and only 5% of it is above the water, surrealism is attempting to paint that other 95%, just like Joyce is attempting to put the other 95% into words. Right, right. Mm. David, do you uh, do you like modern art any more than you like modern music? <laughs> um well, uh, uh, let, let, let's just say that Salvador Dali is the is the is the modernist that Philistines can like. Um, <laughs> oh, that, that that is absolutely true. So, Dolly is yeah. the the modernist that the Philistines like. Isn't he that um, melting clock guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, that melting clock guy. Though, Slicing though up like eyeballs. So I like the swans that turn into elephants. I think that's pretty. Nice. <laughs> but 
you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I, this, this is one of those areas where I'm just, I'm, I'm, I tend to be pretty staid, but you know, I can look at, you know, I can look at Guernica and say, okay, that's, that's neat. And some of, some of the futurist stuff I think is pretty cool with the, you know, the, the kind of repeated shapes as if, you know, you know, as if you're, you're, you're filming an object in movement. And so you're seeing these kind of after images of it as it, as it progresses. And that, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for the most part, I'm going to be camping out in, you know, you know, I'm, 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 I'm going to be camping out in, in your pre-modern stuff. I, if I'm, I'm, a, I'm, if I'm in a museum, I'm going to lead into the next question by making an observation here, David, don't you think, that in in the hyper stylization of some of these modern forms, they are returning in some way to pre modern art. Don't don't you think don't you think that a painting like Wernicke has has more in common with um, Byzantine iconography than with Raphael? Um, in the sense that it's pulling away from photorealism and trying to get at another another kind of depiction of reality, which is what I could, which is what, um, orthodox iconography does. Right. It wants to represent something that it believes is real and important, but that real and important thing isn't, um, a precise replication of what the eye sees. Right. Um, when, when it looks at what's being represented. And the, the Byzantine um, icon is trying to present spiritual reality Picasso is trying to pre- present emotional reality, although he might also say that he is trying to present spiritual reality, and I, you know, we should take him at his word on that. So I, I mean, I look at Guernica and I see, you know, I see late medieval images of the Final Judgment. Mm-hmm. You know, the kind of violence and riot that you see in in those kinds of uh, in, in paintings that have that subject matter, and you'll get right. that. In, I, late medieval art mm-hmm. um, or or even david late medieval depictions of the harrowing of hell yeah yeah that's yeah in so, reverse so yeah i i think that i think there is you know i i think you i think you've got a point there um and that's kind of necessary if you're going to say we're going to do something new and different then you're necessarily still in dialogue with what is old and the same <laughs> it, 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 they're 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 in dialogue, but I mean, what they're what they're rejecting is something more so so much more recent than what you like. That I see what they what they're mm-hmm. doing as a partial return to what you like, which is why I thought this episode might be more interesting to you than uh, it, it initially seemed. Right. Well, certainly when we get into the visual art, we're getting into an area where I'm I'm more comfortable, kind of ex, ex, exploring. And trying and trying to learn to appreciate things, um, I'm I'm more adventurous in trying to under and trying to figure out what a painter's trying to do than I am with a musician. Gotcha. Because I, I, re- I, I really don't like the way musicians get into my head and just make me feel unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> and and paintings are outside of me in a way that 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 lets me um, lets me take my time to decide what you know, what I want to feel about something. Whereas music just kind of crawls up inside my head and I'm like, ah, kind of thing. 
Well, let's uh, let's you move know. on to the next re- semi-related question. Um, the if, <laughs> if the modernists have a credo, it comes from Ezra Pound. It's make it new. Mm-hmm. Um, what is what implications does that sentence have for the individual's relationship to tradition? To paraphrase T.S. Eliot. Well, um, the the essay uh, that you're paraphrasing from is is Eliot's essay entitled tradition and the individual talent. So there you go. Um, which I don't think he would have had to write if there'd not been people who disagreed with him. I don't think this is a, a manifesto like that. Um, you know, like that futurist manifesto that you mentioned, Michael, or, you know, the, the various other artistic manifestos. This seems, this seems rather to be a reaction to, um, people who Elliot thinks get modernism wrong um and what uh one of the things he's reacting against is the idea that to be modern necessarily means that what's been done can't be done again um that tradition or that past art is basically a list of things not to do (laughs) and that to the degree that an artist is different distinct from what came before, particularly what came immediately before, um, the, the, those differences and distinctions are what mark that artist as an individual talent. Those are the things to be appreciated. Um, and that, and that's the, that's the perspective that Elliot's coming up against. And I mean, am, am I fair to say that, that some of modernism does actually seem to be you know, summed up by some of those attitudes. Oh, absolutely. I don't know. Yeah. Cause I don't know that I see Eliot in all of modernism or, or what Eliot, you know, argues in this essay in all of modernism. No. And it, it would be foolish to refer to modernism as primarily a traditional or conservative movement because obviously it's not, but right. it, it gets presented sometimes as this, this utter break with the past. And I don't think that's true of really any of the major mm. modernists. Because, I mean, even, even Joyce Ulysses is a retelling of the story of Odysseus. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, exactly. Eliot certainly, Pound is out there translating ancient Chinese poetry at the same time he's writing his own. Even a, a poem, yep. and, and if you ever want to blow your uh, undergraduates' minds, have them <laughs> read In a Station of the Metro. And point out that that poem is a we- in a weird way a sonnet. It has eight words in the first line and six words in the second line. Hmm. Ah. A minor modernist like E. E. Cummings, um, every every high schooler's favorite poet. Cummings <laughs> is writing mostly in sonnets. You just don't recognize it because he plays with the breaking and he you know does his mm-hmm. weird punctuation stuff. Right. So it's not that I right. think modernism is conservative. That would be ridiculous. But I think it is more conservative than it sometimes appears to be. Right. Well, and that and that's why I, w- I was glad that you pointed me towards this Eliot essay, which which I'd I'd mentioned I'd missed somehow, um, either missed or forgot because it's been so long since I had my critical theory survey. You know. Mm-hmm. And, sure. And frankly, I I kind of phoned that course in anyway. <laughs> Um, but, uh, one of the things that he says, uh, in this essay is that, um, the individual artist who's living, you know, in the now can't mean anything alone because, uh, an art's significance is 
necessarily considered in the context of previous art. Um, so that um, the individual talent's relationship to tradition isn't necessarily to receive whole everything that tradition passes down and simply replicate it, but nor is it to um, to ignore it entirely or or shun it violently or or whatever we want to say, but instead to um, to understand it and then so that so that the things that the artist is um, I guess led to do differently um, are 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 done with with a kind of meaningful interaction with what came before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the artist understands that understands that relationship, understands the 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 potential comment, even even invites it um, in a sense. And I think Elliot does that himself. Sure. Mm-hmm. There, there just has to um, be an it to make new, you know. Yeah, right. yeah, precisely, precisely. Well, the, there's this um, this one quote which I love so much that I immediately threw it up on Facebook. Um, he, he says, "Someone said the dead writers are remote from us because we know so much more than they did." And then Elliot comments, "Precisely, and they are that which we know." <laughs> so. Um, I, I think that really sums up uh, his attitude towards the towards the relationship of tradition and the and, and you know and the individual artist is that it it is the tradition that that makes the art of the individual possible because it is everyone else that makes being an individual possible and it's every other moment that makes now possible. So that that's that's kind of what I got out of it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, am I am I reading it reading it backwards, or am I being too cinema, sentimentally medieval and and just being giddy that Elliot seems to like me? <laughs> About the only thing I'd add, David, is that I mean, what Elliot points up, uh, although I don't know if he ever uses this phrase, is the fact that. This moment, this this early 20th century moment in culture, in poetry, in art, is a decidedly post-romantic moment. Uh, and I mean, you know, when you when you talk about people who are trying to pretend that they have no predecessors, I mean, mm-hmm. the first group I think of is the Romantics. Uh, you know, I, I think Michael's right that you know the the unassuming pronoun in Ezra Pound's. Uh, command make it new right uh the it i think is what is now i mean being emphasized you know more directly in someone like elliot uh but then even in you know james joyce like we talked about before uh it is you know taking an it that is present not pretending Mm -hmm. that it doesn't exist but rather making it new by mapping it onto nobody uh so you know i mean the I think you're absolutely right that, you know, I mean, what, what Elliot wants to call to our attention that in in my view, I mean, someone like, um, Oh, I'm trying to think of a good example of this. I mean, Emerson is the one that always keeps coming to mind. You know, uh, you need to rely on yourself. Well, I mean, what Elliot comes back with is, well, what is a self? Mm -hmm. 
So exactly. yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I I think that you know, modernism in general, and especially T. S. Eliot, are very consciously post-romantic in that respect. And yeah. I mean, Eliot really is the high priest of literary modernism. Hmm. On both sides of the Atlantic. Yes, well, yes. And that, and that really is the you know to me valuable as as, as someone who for whom. That this is this is mostly something that I feel like an outsider when I look at it, mm-hmm. and so initially my responses to modernism have been, you know, well, wait a minute, you know, you aren't you guys aren't the first to react to and reject the past. Didn't you know about the Protestants, the Enlightenment, the Romantics, the? <laughs> but, but I mean, of course, they, of course, they know, you know about that. And, 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 and of course they did. And so, you know, and, and so I get to this and I say, ah, okay, that makes sense. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a situating yourself in, in regard to the past. That's, you know, that's different. That's more, more realizing how yourself is indebted to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, wanting to emphasize, uh, wanting to, to emphasize that separateness but also right, understand right. it. In some and, and, you know, and moreover, you can never pretend if you're a good modernist that the romantics never happened. Right. Right. Uh, but you're right. always resisting that. Oh, do they ever resist them? <laughs> Nobody hates the romantics more than T.S. Eliot. True enough. True enough. But we have him to thank for, you know, the recovery of John Donne. So I like yep. him for that too. You know, I read his essay mm-hmm. on Blake today, and he hates the romantics so much he tries to posit Blake as a uh, Enlightenment thinker. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, he hates romantics more than he loves Blake. <laughs> oh, good. And we're back on that again. <laughs> Sorry. Well, uh, look at the time. It's probably getting to the point where we should wrap it up. So let's do that. Modernism as a movement is largely over by the 1940s. But as is always the case with these broad trends, we still see echoes and reflections of it in contemporary work. What has survived from the modernist era? What do you wish didn't survive from the modernist era? What do you wish had survived and didn't? Um, You know, answer however much of that you want to answer, Nathan. Well, a couple things uh, immediately come to mind. One of them is that uh, I realized in prepping for this show, and I kind of tipped my cards when I was interacting with David on that last question, uh, is that a lot of theological exchanges uh, sort of echo this relationship between the modernists and the romantics. Uh, You know, I mean, there's this idea that... uh, you have this moment in theology that, you know, alternately gets called uh, liberalism or, confusingly enough, modernism, uh, which, you know, in, you know, I'll, I'll give it a broad span here. The last 50 years or so, there have been a school of theologians uh, who have said, well, you know, let's not pretend that liberalism never happened, but let's try to imagine what a post liberal theology looks like. And of course, George Lindbeck because the title of his book, you know, The Nature of Doctrine Towards a Post-Liberal Theology, is the obvious example of that. But a lot of the other folks that have influenced me uh, pretty profoundly, John Howard Yoder, Stan Hauerwas, uh, John Milbank, David Bentley Hart, have that same sort of relationship with the 20th century liberals as 
T.S. Eliot seems to have had with the Romantics. So, I mean, that's something that definitely comes to mind here. The other thing I would say is, you know, again, uh, this is something that I didn't have the self-control to restrain myself on earlier, but so many movie soundtracks are just thoroughly, thoroughly indebted to uh, modernist compositions. Uh, you try to imagine the late 20th, early 21st century movie soundtrack without reference to, you know, Gustav Holst or Igor mm. Stravinsky or, you know, I mean, those modernists, right? I mean, who are trying to create atmosphere rather than being sort of uh, romantically narrative about their compositions. Uh, mm. You know, I mean, it's just all over the place. Whenever you go to the movies, you're going to hear some uh, some echoes, some appropriations, appropriately enough, uh, from the modernist period. So those are the two big uh, places where I see modernist, modernism, pardon me, uh, persisting in our own moment. Uh, what have you got, David? Um, I agree with you about the soundtracks. Um, definitely. Um, I wish maybe this is just, maybe this is just my ignorance, but, um, it'd be nice to see some of the kind of erudition that's in Elliot's Wasteland in contemporary verse. Man, you took mine. But <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Just the, the general the general difficulty of high modernist art. Yeah, um, you know, maybe maybe that's what it is. Maybe maybe it's because literature is is more my thing than others and and I and I like poetry. I like the challenge of of Elliot's um, of Eliot's verse, even in, you know, in its fragmentary nature in its, you know, in the stream of consciousness of proof rock, um, for whatever reason there, I like that, you know, what, you know, that kind of what, what feels to me like jumbledness, disorderedness that repels me in music. I'm fascinated by it in Elliot because I feel like I can put those pieces together and find something when I do. And I love, I love that challenge. And I love the, I love the, um, I love trying to, I love trying to figure it out. Um, you know, I, I, I'd like to read more things like that. Uh, and I, I've found very few like that except for the metaphysical poets, to be frankly, to be frank. Um, but you know, I, I, I do like what you said, Nathan, about, about soundtracks. Um, and because, uh, f for me being able to have a good entry point into an artistic movement helps me to appreciate it better. Um, I think I could probably, you know, undertake some, you know, short passages of, some of the poets that pre or some of the musicians that or composers that have previously repelled me. And if I approach them that way, maybe get more out of it. You know, that's, that's, that's my thing is, is trying to figure out how, how can I, how can I get into something? Um, and so this, this has been helpful to me in that regard that maybe I can, maybe I can appreciate what remains of, of modernism by accessing it through those, um, through those echoes, so to speak. But, 
Michael? Well, you like like I said, you took mine. The the general expectation for high art to be inaccessible, you know, one of the things that happens in postmodernism is that the distinction between high art and low art collapses. And there are good things about that, and there are bad things. And, and one of the bad things is that even even literary novels we now expect us expect to entertain us most of the time, and uh, we're we're not prepared to work um, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's it for Modernism 101. I am certain, based on the. Uh, the speed at which we flew over these movements, we left quite a bit out. So if you have something to add, by all means, email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Go to our website, which is christianhumanist.org. Uh, Nathan, what is on the slate for next week? Well, we're going to go Bible next week again. We're going to do an episode on Elijah. Ooh. Good times. Until then, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs saying let your sins be strong but let your faith be stronger